Hi, welcome to Why Did Peter Sink? If you're new, I always encourage everyone to start at episode one, Blue Light. Today we're doing episode 26, I Don't Like Rules. This is part one of a four-part mini-series. A few years ago, during a basketball game that I was watching, a player leaped forward for a loose ball and landed on his knees. He gathered the ball, and while doing so, he slid across the floor as he was wearing knee pads, which allowed him to coast along the hardwood for about a yard. With only a two-point lead in the game, this slide caused an eruption of fans yelling, Traveling! He traveled! And the referee ignored them, and the game continued. When a timeout was called, the coach approached the referee, and as I was in earshot, I overheard the argument about whether or not the slide constituted a traveling violation. The referee argued for the slide's innocence, and the coach raged about the ruling. So when I went home that night, I had to look up the rule. From the International Basketball Federation, or FIBA, rulebook, I found a full page on the violation of traveling. I read it looking for the sliding scenario to see if the coach or the referee was correct, and in Rule 25.2.2, I found the answer. A player falling, lying, or sitting on the floor. It is legal when a player falls and slides on the floor while holding the ball, or while lying or sitting on the floor gains control of the ball. It is a violation if the player then rolls or attempts to stand up while holding the ball. So the referee was correct. A player can slide with the ball, provided he or she doesn't roll or stand up during the slide. The momentum of the slide does not constitute a step. While holding a basketball, you could slide from one end of the gym to the other and not be called for traveling. A slide only becomes a traveling violation if the player in mid-slide or post-slide tries to take a step or roll over. So that was the first time I had ever cracked open a book of basketball rules despite having enjoyed years of playing the sport as a kid. The fact that I had never, not once, referred to a basketball rule book or any official document struck me as interesting because I felt that I knew a solid amount of detail about the game, but never once had I studied the rules. The idea of reading the rules never even occurred to me, but playing for hours in driveways and open gyms drew me in like a moth to a flame. Playing or watching the game of basketball or baseball or football interested me naturally and made me grow to love the sport. I could talk endlessly about the sport. Reading the rule book, however, does not interest me. Aside from referees and coaches, there are probably few people that do read the rule book. When kids learn to play a sport, you don't give them the rule book. No, they first start playing the game and learn the rules as they go. And soon, they find that the rules are there for good reasons. Take kickball, for instance. Everyone knows kickball or plays it as a kid. Nearly any kid can play it, and while having fun, they learn the rules. And by playing kickball, a kid learns most of the rules of baseball and softball, too, since kickball is basically the same game. But no one stops a kickball game to describe how a force out works by pulling out and referencing the rules of USA Baseball. In other words, I became interested in a sport by playing the game. The love of a sport grows by practicing the sport. It is the same with faith. 
And now here's where you can roll your eyes and many will stop reading or listening. And as I've made the comparison, that will drive many listeners right to the unsubscribe and unfollow button. But consider this. No one gets to faith by reading the book of Leviticus. Likewise, no one reads the Ten Commandments and throws up their hands in prayer. Instead, they throw out their hands up in prayer first and later, perhaps much later, become interested in the Ten Commandments. This I did not understand. I was hung up on faith and religion due to rules or positions around policies like abortion or immigration or taxes or the welfare state. Pick a card, any card. And you may not know which way I sit on any of those issues, which is just fine because it doesn't matter. I had opinions and comments for anything and everything, like we all do. It seems we all do today. But just as I didn't get any closer to faith in my failed attempts to read the Bible because I didn't like certain phrasings and rules, neither did I get closer to the faith by reading the Daily News, which is in large part always about our modern laws and societal rules. And I believed I could never be a Christian due to basically Catholic and evangelical ideas around laws. And I was right. I could not be one. I would never be a Christian because I didn't even understand what it meant to be a Christian. I wasn't practicing. I wasn't playing the game. No, I was scouring the rule book for things I didn't like. Doing so, I banned myself from the stadium, and so I couldn't play or even be a spectator. I was like a baseball fan who didn't like the designated hitter rule, so I quit watching the game forever. And it reminds me of a quote by the biologist Herbert Spencer. There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. Through my own contempt, I was barred from the information and truly stuck in everlasting ignorance. I only saw a stack of rules, and from my angle, it blocked any view of the bigger picture. The faith of Christianity disallows many activities and choices that we desire, like, for instance, watching porn and getting drunk and having meaningless hookup sex, and hoarding money. So yes, there are rules. People really don't like that Christians fence these activities out via their rules, and I hated rules as much as the next guy because I loathed having any rules lorded over me. I wanted to be my own boss. As I said in the past episodes, don't tell me what to do, was kind of my motto. Thus, an impassable mountain sat between me and faith. It is impossible to have faith in the state I occupied because contempt prohibits any attempt. But the rules of the Christian faith were not the problem. I thought the rules were the problem, but that was not the problem. No, it was my yearning to be self-sufficient in all things that blocked a much deeper yearning. I, I did not want to give up an inch of ground, territory that I imagined I had fought for and won by rejecting the traditions and stories of older generations. Here I was, the modern hero uprooting the tales of what I considered to be a 2,000-year hoax that had somehow duped 80 generations of men and women. Me against the world. If someone had told me 
Freedom comes from obedience, not rebellion. I would have raged at them and spat. Don't tell me what to do. That was the motto. As long as the goal of my life was centered on drinking or money or, or sex or work, whatever, then of course I didn't want any rules. How could I? In private, I wanted to do whatever felt good. In public, I wanted to do whatever made me appear cool to my peers. And more importantly, I didn't want to be challenged by anything, ever. Especially, I didn't want to be challenged by rules passed down from ancient superstitious goat herders who didn't even know that the earth went around the sun. What possible value could I get from Bronze Age wanderers that had never heard of natural selection or calculus or atomic weight or absolute zero? And that is how the shield formed around me. I bristled at laws that appeared to go against the mantra of love one another while crowning myself with the knowledge gained by human ingenuity, not my ingenuity, mind you, but others, I felt that progress through scientific revelation, not religion, would rectify the problems of the past and usher in the glorious future. There was one devastating problem with these positions. This future utopia through science and economics required me to have a massive amount of faith in human beings as a group. In fact, I think now it requires more faith to believe in humans than it does to believe in God. After all, we have immense historical evidence of what humans do to one another from all ages, and the 21st and 20th century are very good indicators of why we might want to limit that belief in humanity. Even this week, horrors permeate the news. Even while we are right now at the greatest heights of technological prowess and scientific progress, so this drive for progress that seemed like the answer to, f to fix ourselves and our world has not done it. Conversely, for all its wonders, progress has simultaneously led to many unanticipated problems. And as the old saying goes, every kind of progress is a double-edged sword. This can be observed repeatedly in history where science or invention introduces or discovers something about the world we live in, which is great, and that knowledge can then be used for good or evil, usually both. You don't get fireworks without someone in China first playing around with mixtures of sulfur and saltpeter, but the fun of that first sparkler was quickly recognized as gunpowder for weapons. In the same way, you don't get to billions of metric tons of carbon dioxide spewing in the atmosphere without hundreds of small accretions of knowledge. Take, for example, Alessandro Volta's toy pistol that fired a cork when hydrogen touched an electric spark. You don't get the spark plug without that toy gun. There's always this give and take with the word progress, but today the pull of it draws us further away from meaningful questions and has us instead cleave to facts and facts alone with the idea of God being sidelined evermore each year. And this makes the big empty inside us yawn even more and reveal its bottomless chasm. Faith in science and faith in atheistic ideologies means having more faith in humans than God. But here is the devastating problem with that brand of faith. To love one another, 
goes directly against our instincts and those ideologies without God cannot claim any kind of foundation for morality. No matter how much knowledge we have, at our core, we are flawed with jealousy and hate and lust and greed. We're capable of great things, but we're capable of those things as well. This idea about loving one another didn't come from a post-enlightenment thinker like Immanuel Kant or Karl Marx or Albert Einstein or Steve Jobs. It came from Jesus, a carpenter from the first century. This is the underlying problem of everyone who is claiming love for their cause. Even atheists like to talk about Jesus and his message of love one another. Every group wants a piece of that second commandment he gave. But all these loves quickly contradict each other and we're left in a pickle. The public campaign of secular and religious groups relentlessly bang the drum that love is on our side. But the secular side only wants the second of Jesus' two commandments. They reject the first commandment completely. Definitely, we all want the second one. Love one another, but absolutely not the first one. Love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. That's the first one. Everyone wants Jesus on their side, even while they deny God. And that might be the most fascinating thing of all to me about Jesus. Even atheists and Marxists somehow want to claim Jesus for their argument. They want Jesus in their corner but only if he's got nothing supernatural or transcendent about him. What they don't seem to realize is that if Jesus is not supernatural, then he's a liar and a lunatic, which I talked about in some past episodes of my own struggle to come to faith in the resurrection. So this Lord, liar, or lunatic dilemma, known as the trilemma from C.S. Lewis, puts us into this situation where you have to pick one. Jesus is Lord, lunatic, or liar. You must pick one. But there is this magnetism to Jesus, even for those who reject God. So it does never make sense of why someone wants Jesus to be on their side if they don't think he was divine, because then he was insane. So even those who say they reject God, they still want Jesus. It's utterly confusing. Even those who despise the idea of God will still quote the words of Jesus. Even the atheists say, but Jesus loved everyone. He loved the murders and the prostitutes. He wouldn't judge. Judge not lest ye be judged. Everyone, believer and non-believer, wants Jesus on their side. I wonder why that is. Why is he so powerful of an idea to us? Why can't we stop talking about him? What is going on? Somehow, someway, despite every effort of this world to stifle and crush the fire of faith in this carpenter, it fails every time, in every generation, in every age. There's a story of Napoleon telling a Cardinal Consalvi that his armies would destroy the church, to which the Cardinal replied, if in 1800 years we clergy have failed to destroy the church, do you really think that you'll be able to do it? While amusing, it is indeed a fact, one that we are living through once again today. Why, why is it that nothing can destroy faith in this man or in his church with all these hated rules and prohibitions where generation after generation fights against it? Why does Christianity remain standing? Well, I have some ideas about that. 